your job. Hello and, and welcome to another episode to of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Kyle Fisher, who serves as the policy director for the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention, Javi. He leads the organization in coordinating, developing, and advocating for evidence-informed policy to end community violence. Besides this role, he continues to practice as an emergency physician and fellowship director in health policy with the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And with that, Dr. Fisher, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. No, the pleasure is all yours. Uh, let's begin with your background. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you grew up? What led you to become an emergency medicine physician focusing on gun violence? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, I'm in Maryland now. Um, but I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I uh, came up uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's a pretty small uh, Midwestern town, uh, fairly uh, unremarkable upbringing. Uh, like ran track and cross country in high school. You know, have a very big family. Uh, you know that there's a big hunting culture in Wisconsin. So you know, I got my hunter safety license at 12 and was in the woods, you know, going hunting. So firearms were, you know, something that were part of normal living in Wisconsin. Uh, later went to school at UW-Madison and ended up in doing my emergency medicine residency training in Philadelphia before coming to University of Maryland uh, after that. Along the way, um, I, I did find uh, violence intervention to be a, a huge passion of mine. It came out of probably a combination of um, what I learned about the importance of advocacy and speaking up for your patients when I was at UW-Madison in Wisconsin, um, and this idea that you should use medical training uh, to make your community better, not just uh, one person in front of you, but it should be good. Uh, you should be doing your work in service of your entire community. And that really hit home for me when I was in Philadelphia doing my residency and experiencing gun violence, you know, every shift, you know, day in, day out. And you would take care of patients. Uh, and it didn't seem like there was enough happening to take care of them um, and the patients as a community. Uh, and not just, you know, the single patient that you're seeing and running through ATLS and freedom and freedom, that, that seemed broken. And I was incredibly lucky when I was at Drexel to have met Dr. Ted Corbin, who to this day is my, you know, I consider to be a mentor of mine. Uh, and Dr. Corbin had started the Healing Hurt People program, which is a hospital-based violence intervention program out of Drexel University, which was this better system for taking care of patients in the communities they live with. I want to touch a little bit on your background growing up in Green Bay because I think that presents a very interesting juxtaposition uh, between what you're experiencing now, practicing emergency medicine. Gun culture means many different things in many different parts of this country. Uh, at what point did you realize the concept of gun ownership is so dramatically different in different parts of the country? And did that at all come into the calculus in deciding to be an advocate for gun violence? So, you know, I, f 
from my background and growing up in Wisconsin, you know, what I've always taught or been taught uh, by the people around me, my family and friends that, you know, firearms are a tool. It's, uh, you know, and you can use that tool for as either a way to hunt a deer or to, you know, engage in warfare. That's what it is. It's a tool. And so because of that, you, you know, address it straight on with what it is. And it's absolutely the truth that America uh, has a very different landscape of firearm ownership than the vast majority of the rest of the world. But, um, you know, it manifests in different ways. Taking that just reality that the guns are in the communities and fitting solutions to how you can make people healthy. The context of the use determines the overall risk to the user. And I think that's an important point. What attracted you to that organization? So the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention is the national organization that represents hustle-based violence intervention programs, just like the program I mentioned before, Healing Hurt People in Philadelphia. Uh, we have about 50 uh, programs around the country now with about that many programs that are just starting up. Uh, we do a variety of different ways to try to build up this, you know, new healthcare system that better takes care of patients. Um, we stand up uh, programs uh, or support programs that do want to stand up. We're not a top-down organization that, you know, hospitals pay us and we go in. No, it's the other way around. Uh, people in hospitals or communities that want to start violence intervention programs, um, we support them. Uh, either through kind of peer learning and uh, continual education for the programs that have already started. But we also do a tremendous amount of training and technical assistance work uh, for people that are just getting start out, started and they have heard about the solutions, maybe they've read some papers and they would like to launch a program of their own. So our actual largest <laughs> department is in training and technical assistance because it is very challenging work. It is very technical. It is not something that someone can just say, oh, I'm a doctor, so I'm good at one thing. I can surely do this. We have to know our limits, and this is one area where we can be a leader and help start things out and be the champion, but uh, it really takes a big team and uh, some help and assistance to make sure you do it right, because yeah. we are talking about life and death here. It's always in the context of hey, let's prevent future gun violence. Or, hey, well, we stopped a future attack, so we're successful. But you feel that that's a very low bar to judge success. People don't appreciate the full extent of work that's required. Let me just preface this by saying that gun violence is a number of different diseases. It's kind of like how, as doctors, we always kind of cringe a little bit when some politician says, we're going to cure cancer. And we all say, but that's like 200 different diseases. I don't even know how many cancers there are. Similar with gun violence, right? So there's community violence, uh, or you know, previously known as street violence or gang violence, things like that. Uh, suicide, that's the number one cause of death from gun violence in America. Uh, there is um, intimate partner violence. Uh, child abuse or child neglect, you know, non-intentional. Non uh, we don't like to say accidental because everything's preventable. Um, 
mass casualty shootings. And we could go on for a little while like this, right? So um, with all of these different types of gun violence, there are different ways to approach them. Uh, and just like to keep that in mind because depending on the listener, you might be in one space or another where it might make sense for you to uh, spend more of your time, you know, for example, looking at suicide prevention rather than community violence, depending on where you work. You always want to match your practice to um, where your patients, uh, where they're at. And so on the side of community violence, we do recognize uh, at the hobby that it is incredibly important that we can save lives. Uh, you know, I'm an emergency physician. It's what I love to do, right? Uh, it's why we go to the ERs. We're hoping to save some lives. Uh, but that is kind of the start of the story and the lowest common denominator uh, for what healing really looks like. And to think through this, um, let's imagine a patient. And we'll call him Mike. So let's say Mike lives in, uh, in my city in Baltimore. And he's living in West uh, West Baltimore, where uh, there's been, you know, disinvestment for decades. Uh, there was redlining uh, a long time ago. Uh, the lead pipes that were installed, you know, decades ago, still haven't come been removed. Uh, the neighborhood has, you know, been suffering from. Uh, the opioid epidemic, which is still raising, uh, still going strong, uh, their mass incarceration has really affected the community. And because of all of that, when Mike's, you know, before Mike has shot, we gotten injured, there's been a lot of going on. And when we think of adverse childhood experiences and um, that Kaiser study that came out decades ago, we know that adverse childhood experiences causes trauma and changes with um, our development. You know, when your baseline cortisol levels uh, are changed uh, because of these traumatic experiences, uh, that makes a difference. And in communities that suffer from endemic gun violence, we know that those uh, traumatic experiences or ACEs, they cluster. So before Mike, has an injury, he's already been exposed to that. And so now imagine uh, Mike gets injured, he gets taken to a hospital where he gets a chest tube, he gets intubated, he goes to the operating room, and then um, thankfully he improves and gets discharged. But what happens after he gets discharged? So he's likely gonna be discharged back to the same neighborhood that the shooting occurred and on top of that, now he's dealing with all of the mental injury uh, and social challenges that uh, result from gunshot wounds. So post-traumatic stress disorder uh, doesn't just exist in soldiers that return from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the human brain does not recognize the difference between injuries in Baltimore and injuries in the Middle East. Uh, it's simply not the case. So we know that that's highly likely. There's actually data going back at least 30 years uh, showing that survivors of gunshot wounds, about a year later, 80% of patients have signs and symptoms of PTSD. Cannabis is very common. And all of these things, you know, provide a cycle where 
one injury creates more risk factors for another injury, which can create more risk factors for another injury. And that's why you can really intervene at any point to help, you know, decrease the risk factors, bolster the protective factors, and do everything that you can to make sure that patients fully re recover both physically, psychologically, and socially. Um, uh, hospital violence intervention programs have really picked up quite a bit of steam uh, over the last few years, despite the fact that the first programs were launched um, <laughs> roughly 25 years ago. Uh, the first programs, there was one in Oakland called Youth Alive that is still running strong to this day. In Milwaukee, there is a pediatric program called Project Eugenia, which is still a fantastic program. Uh, and on the East Coast, uh, yeah. Boston Medical Center and uh, Baltimore Shock Trauma Center were some of the originators. There's a few others as well. Um, and so the program started 25 years ago, but you know we all know in medicine, there's that old line that it takes you know 10 years between creating something and it being implemented in practice and i think for public health measures that are kind of systems-based approaches that aren't just like prescribing statin it takes even longer so there is a lot of awareness that uh still is to be had uh i i know that i'm still talking to people every week and uh they're like oh i didn't know that this was mm -hmm. an approach. I didn't right. know that this was something we could do. And people are um, generally finding it very, they're just relieved that there's something else that we can do, similar political debate that happens in Washington, D.C. about the Second Amendment and what should be, you know, where should we stand on the Second Amendment? I, you know, I, I've definitely noticed that people are relieved to think of other solutions beyond that, regardless of where they sit on Second Amendment issues. But then we are talking about systems-based approaches towards violence prevention, and it's not, it goes beyond, you know, the clinic or the hospital or the emergency department. These are team-based approaches that, you know, you have to hire a frontline violence prevention worker that is going to really be the engine of these programs. These are, you might, for listeners, they might think of them kind of like a community health worker, but for violence. Uh, and, Depending on your community, you may have heard of them by other names. So, violence prevention professional, violence intervention specialists, violence interrupters, credible messengers, and calculating the amount of money saved through prevention has always been something that we have had to work hard uh, to show the value of. And sometimes it gets complicated because is the value to the hospital or is it to the community or is it to CMS? very pleased to say that we've had historic investments in community violence intervention programming just like hospital-based violence intervention programs over the last two to three years uh, more funding than ever before and now is a really wonderful time for people to um, start looking into these programs because there is funding available from cities and counties states and the federal government now it's interesting you mentioned that you were quite successful with Medicaid and those financial correlates. So, you know, I'm a public health, public policy guy and an ER doc. So it's a very, very practical, like what are steps A, B and C that we need to do to make sure um, we are successful. You know, that's kind of the EM mindset. And, you know, at the hobby, when we think about things, it's okay. We believe that 
violence prevention is a public health and a health-based <laughs> issue. And if that's the case, how is that going to work? Well, it needs to be paid for like every other medical medical issue in America, right? We don't start it. We don't say that cath labs uh, are going to be grant funded and we're going to uh, reapply um, once a year to see whether or not we can take care of patients with heart attacks. No, we say if you're qualified and you're running the services, yeah. uh, when you do the services, we will reimburse you for it. And we got the frontline workers recognized by the National Uniform Claims Committee, a uh, a committee that I didn't know existed until we started that program, and they're the ones that hold the master list of what a healthcare provider is. So violence prevention professionals, we got that added. And then uh, we were successful in getting um, the Biden administration uh, to include as part of their gun violence plan that Medicaid can and should be used to reimburse for violence prevention services. And after that, now we're up to five different states. If you launch a program, you have to know that you can you know, pay your frontline workers salaries so they can put food on the table, not just today, but next year too. People have families. Uh, they need to be able to have that assurance that their job is gonna be there and not just you know, subject to the whims of some random grant somewhere. And it's critically important. If violence goes up in a community, uh, I've really learned through this three different things. You know, I, just to start, I wanna say that for any of the listeners, I, I do think that having multiple different lenses that you're viewing your um, area of practice through makes you a better doctor, right? So um, learning the policy, learning the uh, medicine, learning the programs, learning the advocacy, mm -hmm. I think it just makes things better for all of those different domains. Uh, by getting good at teaching, um, that's what patients need, right? Like patients want to learn about what's going on and understand their symptoms and they want to understand what's next and what's available to them. And separately through advocacy, you know, I have learned more about victim services and the relationship between um, the law and uh, things that might be happening at the Department of Justice and my patients. Uh, so it really gives a broader perspective that you can take both the patients and your hospital um, and policymakers. And to that bigger question about how does this relate to advocacy, you know, in medicine, I think we're all trained that if you're going to do academic medicine in, in particular, uh, that there's you know one way to do it. You have a research problem, you apply for a grant through NIH or CDC or some other health-based organization, and then you do the, do the research study, you publish the paper, and then you apply for more funding. And with when you get into the advocacy community and the policymaking community, you really learn that there are so much more lenses to it. And in fact, for violence prevention, if you're just looking at funding and you're only looking at uh, what the NIH or CDC has, you're missing most of the opportunity because most of the opportunity to get these funds to deliver these programs is through either state victim of crime assistance funds or 
there was a $100 million Department of Justice grant for this type of programming. So if you're only looking at one sphere, you're, you're missing so much more of what's going on. I think that broader understanding is critical to finding solutions. Yeah, and you know what I, what I would start out by saying is that in the world there are no absolutes. And even if we look at medicine and some of the best interventions that exist in the world, right? So think of aspirin for heart attacks. Aspirin for heart attacks. We know it saves lives, right? There's no discussion about it. That question was settled years ago. But at the same time, we have this thing that we call the number needed to treat. How many patients do you need to give the medicine to to tip it over so that it saves the life, right? And that number needed to treat isn't one. Uh, in fact, in aspirin, off the top of my head, I, I believe it's 42, which is, it sounds like a lot, but a lot of people have heart attacks. And that's why we don't just do one thing. We do aspirin, we have cath labs, we control the blood pressure. We, you know, we have so many different things that we do to increase the life, the chances of saving lives. And violence is exactly the same, right? If we're talking about someone that is at risk of being a victim of gun violence. And that keyword is at risk. There's yeah. no one is destined to get shot. There have been lots and lots of studies on this. In fact, I saw a systematic review. The numbers come between, in the median, is 30 to 40%. Think of that. About one in three patients that get shot will be shot again. And these are otherwise healthy 20, 30-year-old guys that don't have diabetes or heart disease or a history of stroke, but otherwise healthy. We're talking about 30%. There is a tremendous amount that we can do. And, you know, in America last year, there were a little over 20,000 Americans that died of homicides. And so if we cut that percentage down, right, we know nothing in medicine is 100%, but if we cut it down 10%, oh boy, we've gone from 20,000 and we've saved 2,000 lives. That's a big deal. And that's 10% is not even a big percent. I think, I know we can do better than that. I've got an eye on the community and we know, you know, we can do this. You know, we, in medicine, we, we're trained to evaluate the literature. We're trained to look at a paper and say, hey, what works, what doesn't work, you know, what needs more data? And I think even when, even though there are hot button issues, solutions that, you know, don't have to be heated. Um, don't get me wrong. Don't tell me I can't take care of my patients. I'm going to take objection to that. And I did. Um, but part of what the, this is, um, this is our lane movement was about saying, hey, we've been studying these issues. We take care of these patients. We hear their stories. We are the ones that tell patients' mothers that they have died, and they are all telling us that something has to change, something has to improve. And we've looked at the literature, and here are some solutions. This is what the literature says. And we are members of this community and have knowledge and have expertise, and I think is the, the biggest issue. Um, it does oftentimes feed into uh, many stereotypes that uh, are often, frankly, racist in origin. So one is, you know, infusing back that humanity in who these people were. Um, 
every patient and uh, person that either dies or survives a gunshot wound, they have a story, they have a history, they have family, they have hopes and dreams and um, plans for the future. Um, when that person dies, it is a tragedy for every person. So I would say, first thing, just come and visit our website. It's www.thehavi.org. It's Havi as in the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention, H-A-V-I. Our website has a tremendous amount of resources. That white paper that we have will teach you everything you need to know about the evidence behind it, the uh, um, advocacy opportunities, and the history. Uh, so it's a great place for you know a budding doc to take a look and learn more. And then we have links to advocacy pages too. In fact, we have different bullet points, whether or not, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're a healthcare system or administrator, or if you're a policymaker. And so we do our best to uh, reach out to people so that they can, um, they know where to start. Because it's very confusing if you're not in the space and most people want to know just where to get started. And um, people can always email me. I'm uh, happy to talk and happy to connect people. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.